Hey, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here, Senior Pastor of Coastal. And uh, man, what a great morning. I'm so glad you decided to join us in worship. I want to introduce a new series that we're going to be doing over the next four weeks called Connected. And it really flows from the nature of our God. Our God is lives in community. He is a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And He lives in community. And out of His nature, we live in community. He's created us for community. And so we want to talk about four really important relationships that we have over the next four weeks. One, we'll talk about a relationship with God. And if you're disconnected from your creator, none of the other earthly relationships you have will make sense. And so we want to talk to you about how to be connected to God. Number two, we want to talk about the family, right? Our family is a key relationship here on earth. And and it flows from the cornerstone of knowing our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it's also the cornerstone of discipleship. Thirdly, we want to talk about our relationship with others in the community and how, what has God left us here to do? How do we serve others? And then finally, the fourth relationship is that of our church family. And how has God knitted us to be in community in our local churches? And so we really believe these four key relationships will help you in all of your relationships here on earth in this series called Connected. Pastor Sean mentioned, we are going to be talking about these four key relationships in our lives. And as Pastor Sean mentioned, God created us to live in relationship because we are made in the image of a relational God. God is in himself, in his own being, both unity and community at the same time. And that's hard to get our heads around, and it should be. Right? God is a trinity. That means he is one being, one God, eternally existing in three equal eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means for all of eternity, there has always been community. There has always been relationships. And so in, as those made in his image, we were also made for relationships. I mean, think about it. Before sin entered into the world, there was only one thing that God said was not good. Does anyone remember what that was? It was not good for man to be alone. We were created to be in relationships with other people. But here's the problem, sin. Other than that, we're fine. But that's the problem, sin. And sin has absolutely wrecked all of the relationships in our lives. We struggle to maintain healthy relationships and all of the relational brokenness we see in our world can be traced back to rebellion against our creator. Sin is what causes conflict in our marriages. In fact, what was the first fight in the Bible? <laughs> Genesis chapter three, they sinned. And then they, Adam says, Lord, it was that woman that you gave me. It was her fault, blaming his wife. We have struggles in the rest of our family and our parenting with our siblings. In the very next chapter, you have the first murder and it was brother against brother. We have struggles in our relationships at work. We have struggle with relationships with our friends, in our churches, in our neighborhoods and communities, in our nation, so on and so forth. Because of sin, we struggle to have relationships that honor God. And so as followers of Christ, if we are going to reflect the image of God by having healthy relationships with others, we've got to learn what that looks like. And so the first relationship that we're going to talk about in this series this morning is our relationship with God. And now we start here because that's the most important one right? Because God is the most important person in the universe. Therefore, your relationship with God is your most important relationship in your life. It ought to be our highest priority. 
but not just priority. You know, I was talking with Pastor David about this sermon this week, and he used a word that I really like. He said, it's not just about priority. It's that our relationship with God is pervasive, that it pervades everything. It's not just we make this list and go, God, then family, then work, then so on and so forth. It's that our relationship with God influences and pervades all of the other relationships, My relationship with God informs my relationship at home. It informs my relationships at work and with my friends. And here's the incredible thing. Growing closer to God will make you better in every other relationship. It's the one relationship that'll do that. Growing in your relationship with the Lord will make you a better spouse. That's why every time I do premarital counseling, I do that corny thing that every pastor does, but we do it because it works. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it right? It's where you get the whiteboard and you draw a big old triangle on it and you look at the couple and you say, you're here, you're here, God's here. And guess what happens as you both get closer to God? You get closer together. It's cheesy, but it's true. And here's why. As we grow closer to God, what is the fruit of the spirit? We become more loving, more joyful, more patient, more kind, more forgiving and gracious and all of these things, more self-control, all of these things that make us better spouses, better friends, better parents, so on and so forth. A lot of times we're looking at the relationships in our lives in isolation, but here's the deal. If you would focus on your relationship with God, you would by default be a better husband, a better wife, a better friend, a better parent for many of these ways. So what's the goal this morning of this sermon? I wanna look at these famous two little verses in Jeremiah to understand what it looks like both to prioritize our relationship with God and to grow in it. And here's the main point, very simple. Our relationship with God should be our highest priority. This sermon this morning, guys, it is not rocket science, but it is absolutely foundational to everything else in our lives. And so I hope that this is a good reminder for all of us to put God at the center of our lives. With this in mind, let's read these two verses together. Jeremiah 29, uh, 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. And Lord, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word this morning. We ask that your spirit would open up our minds and hearts to receive what you would teach us from your holy and inspired word this morning to conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, help us to grow in our relationship with you, to put you first in everything that we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I love these two verses. They're very, you know, you hear me say this phrase sometimes. These verses are coffee cup material. Like this is really good stuff. This is encouraging. This could be on a mural in your living room or whatever. These are encouraging verses. But that's not true of all the verses around it. In fact, read the verses that come before this. Read the verses that come after this. They're pretty dark, in fact, because this comes in the context of a passage about judgment. Let's talk a little bit about the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was prophesying right before and during the time of the exile. So if you know your Old Testament history, you know that God, as we studied in Exodus, entered into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. The covenant was very simple terms was like this. You obey me, I'm gonna bless your socks off and you're gonna live long in the land that I'm giving you. You disobey me, you're gonna get evicted. I'm kicking you out of the land as punishment for your disobedience. And somehow they made it almost a thousand years. Honestly, I'm shocked this didn't happen sooner. 
if you read the history of Israel. But we get to Jeremiah's time and their disobedience was finally complete and God raised up the Babylonians to judge Israel for their sins and he is sending them into exile. And Jeremiah is prophesying this judgment in chapter nine. But verses 23 and 24 come as something as an oasis in the midst of a desert. They come as a glimmer of hope and appeal to this people to stop trusting in themselves, but to start trusting in the Lord. So let's walk through this text word by word together. Let's look at verse 23. He begins by telling them what not to boast in. He says, hey, don't boast in these things. The basic point of verse 23, and we're gonna go through it line by line, is self-reliance. Israel was tempted to boast, to rely on their own abilities, their own power, their own resources, thinking that they could save themselves from the judgment that was coming. And I think in the same way, you and I are often tempted to rely on ourselves instead of on God. The word that he uses here over and over is boast. Don't boast in this. The idea behind boasting is glorying in something, celebrating something, taking pride in something. It is the outward expression of what has captured our heart. It's what we're leaning on, what we're relying on, what we're trusting in, and what we're celebrating. And let's look at the three things that they were tempted to boast in and that you and I are also tempted to boast in. The first is wisdom. Wisdom. Verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. And now we know from God's word that wisdom is a good thing, isn't it? I mean, he tells us to pursue wisdom. We want to know the wisdom that comes from God's word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what I think is in view here is worldly wisdom or human wisdom rather than God's wisdom. This is wisdom that is self-reliant, wisdom that is founded on human reasoning where man is at the center of the universe rather than clinging to God and his word for wisdom. So how do we boast in our own wisdom today? I think this is when we take pride in our own intellect, our own intelligence, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own worldviews and philosophies rather than depending on God. It's where I find my identity in the number of books that I've read and how many degrees are hanging on my wall. And how does that manifest itself in our behavior? Well, first of all, when we start to judge people on the basis of their educational status rather than their character, you size people up, you judge them based on how smart you perceive them to be. Manifests itself in being a know-it-all, which means speaking of relationships, you won't have many friends because you'll be insufferable at parties. It manifests itself on a very heart level when we try to figure out all of the problems in our life on our own rather than leaning on God. What's the famous verse from Proverbs 3? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. This is when we lean on our own understanding rather than leaning on the Lord. And I wanna show you from 1 Corinthians 1, this passage is critical for understanding this. I wanna show you God's opinion of human wisdom. This is what God thinks of human wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, God is not impressed with human wisdom. God loves you, but he ain't impressed with you. God is not impressed with human wisdom. In fact, if we were to take all of the accumulated knowledge from every human civilization, take the great philosophers and theologians and sages in world history, take all of the great universities in world history, take all of the scientific findings in world history, combine all of them, and it can't even compare to the knowledge of the omniscient God. Not even close. And the great irony of this text is that God was pleased to save his people through what the world calls foolish, a crucified Messiah. But to those who are called, the gospel is the very wisdom of God. So the exhortation for us is not to rely on our own wisdom, but rather on the wisdom of God revealed in the gospel. Don't lean on your own wisdom, but next, boasting in power, in power. He goes on to say, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Again, this is human strength and ability rather than God's power and God's ability. Perhaps Israel was tempted to trust in the ability of her own armies to defend themselves against the Babylonians. Perhaps they were tempted to trust in the other nations around them, thinking that they could save them from the judgment of God that was coming. And there's a variety of ways that we can boast in our own power and in our own ability today. Sometimes that can be physical strength. You've probably heard stories or maybe you know someone who's an athlete and they find their identity and their sport and their craft. But listen, all it takes is one injury and their world falls apart because that's who I was. And now I have to find it all over again. But not just physical strength, this power can simply be a position of authority. It can be that feeling of being in charge. This is for our control freaks who I find my identity and I find my safety and I boast in feeling like I am in control, that I have the power, that I am in charge and I can't let go. And just as God is not impressed with human wisdom, let me tell you that the omnipotent almighty God is not impressed by human power. He's not impressed. You know why? Even if you could like bench press 500 pounds or something, good for you. God can create a universe with a word. What are you gonna do? Like he is almighty. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. He is all powerful. Why on earth will we trust in our own power rather than on God's? But don't worry, it gets worse because I think the third one is probably the worst thing you could rely on out of the three and that's money. That's money. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. This is leaning on our own resources rather than leaning on God. And I think this is the one that we see perhaps the most obviously today because we live in a culture that is incredibly indulgent and materialistic. And how often, if we're being honest with ourselves, do we size a person up? Do we make a value judgment on another human being based on the car they drive? 
based on the house they live in, based on their job title, based on how they dress, based on how much they have. We boast in our own riches today and wealth carries with it the illusion of self-sufficiency, the illusion that I can buy my way out of my problems rather than leaning on the infinitely rich God. This is what Jesus had to say about this. There was the man who was very wealthy in this parable in Luke chapter 12, and this is what he says. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, his words, not mine. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I love that. Whose will they be? I want you to think about something. Picture in your head right now your most prized possession. It could be your car. It could be your home. You know, it could be a guitar or a computer or a book or whatever else it might be. You got it? You got it in your mind? I want to tell you that in a couple of decades, that's either going to be on a yard sale or in a landfill. Happy Sunday. <laughs> Whose will they be after you die? So is the one, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Why would we put our trust in something that we could lose in a moment? Why would we put our trust in something that won't last forever? There's the old preacher story that, again, we use because it's true, uh, about the man, the very wealthy businessman who'd come to the end of his life, and he pleaded with God, hey, please let me take some of my stuff with me when I go. And God said, okay, I'm gonna make an exception for you. You can take one suitcase, so he sold everything that he had and got a collection of gold, a bunch of gold bars. And he loaded up this big suitcase with gold bars. And he approaches the gates of heaven and he sees Peter standing there. And Peter says, hey, what do you got there? Oh, I have this suitcase, all my stuff's in it. So Peter's like, you mind if I take a look? Sure. He opens it up. Peter looks and he looks at the man all confused. Why'd you bring more pavement? <laughs> everything we own compared to what God has, it's worthless. It's useless. So why on earth would we trust in those things? Just as the God who made and owns everything is not impressed with our wisdom, he's not impressed with our power, he's also not impressed with your money because he gave it to you and he can take it away if he wants to. It's all his. What he is telling Israel and what we need to hear today is that there is nothing more foolish than relying on yourself. There's nothing more foolish than leaning on your own understanding, leaning on your own power and leaning on your own resources. That is exactly the opposite of what a relationship with God is supposed to be like. We are to come to God the way that a small child comes to their father. That's why Jesus said, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you come that way. Here's the irony though. In parenting, our goal is to raise our children to become more and more independent over time. In our relationship with God, it is to raise us to become more and more dependent over time, to become more and more dependent on God day by day. So if that's what we should not boast in, what should we boast in, according to Jeremiah? What should we boast in? Verse 24, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. We should boast in knowing God and knowing God. And I hope you know, no pun intended, uh, that this knowing is a lot more than just head knowledge. 
In scripture, the word know is a deeply relational term. To know God means to have an intimate relationship with God. But we even use that language today, don't we? We can say things like, I know of them, means I've heard of them, but I don't know them. I don't have a relationship with them. I've never spent time with them. And we can speak of it even in degrees. So for example, if I'm hanging out with someone I just met, I can say, I'm getting to know them. I'm progressively coming to know them more and more. This is what it looks like to have a relationship with God, to progressively get to know God, to grow in our knowledge of him. And this knowledge, it includes both the mind as we know more information about God, but it also includes the heart as we grow to love God more and delight in God more. And I wanna show you something. Turn back one page in your Bible, uh, in Jeremiah chapter nine. That's page 637 in my Bible, but that probably didn't help you. Uh, So look with me, first of all, Jeremiah nine, verse three. It says, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. They proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me. Skip down to verse six. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Twice in this chapter already, he's already identified their biggest problem. They don't know me and they refuse to know me. What he's saying is more than anything else, they need to know God. And friends, that is what we need more than anything else. I don't know what you came in this morning thinking that your biggest need was, but I'm here to tell you, your biggest need is to know God, to know God. Jesus Christ said that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God is the very essence of eternal life. There's a song by the Gettys called, My Worth is Not in What I Own. And I love one of the lines to the verses. It goes like this. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. So I had you turn to 1 Corinthians 1 earlier. Let's actually look back there. I wanna look at the rest of the chapter together because I want you to see something fascinating here. Paul takes the text that we're studying from Jeremiah and he applies it to a church with a pride problem to show them that what they needed more than anything else was to quit boasting in themselves and to boast that they know God. So 1 Corinthians 1.26. This was kind of a light bulb for me as I was studying this week. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Let's pause right there for a minute. That was not a compliment. Paul is not very concerned with their self-esteem. In fact, he basically just called them dumb, weak, and not important. But I want you to think about those three categories. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, which would have implied wealth. Do you see what's going on here? He's using these verses in these same categories. But then he goes on to do it in this way, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So God intentionally chooses the weak, the unwise. He chooses those who are not wealthy. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, and this should sound familiar to you, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is using Jeremiah 9 to make this point. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in knowing God, in knowing God. And Jeremiah goes on to show us two things that we should know about this God. The first is that he is love. He shows us that God is love. Look at verse 24 of Jeremiah. It says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, who practices steadfast love. Now, just to nerd out for two seconds, this word that's translated as steadfast love uh, pretty consistently in the ESV is a Hebrew word that is so rich in meaning that we really can't translate it with just one word. There's really three key ideas with this word. There's the idea of love, there's the idea of loyalty, and there's the idea of covenant. Let me summarize all that together in a package. This word means that God is faithful to act in love toward the people that he is in covenant with. He is faithful to act in love toward the people that he is in covenant with. He is the God who delights to do that, who practices that. Church, God is a God of faithful, loyal, steadfast love. Here's why that really matters in a sermon on relationships. Everybody in this room has felt unloved in a relationship. You felt abandoned you felt betrayed. You have been sinned against and hurt. And if you haven't, just keep living because you will, because we're all sinners. Your only option other than God for your relationships are sinners. So you will get hurt. But your relationship with God is the one relationship where you can be certain that he will never do any of those things. God is the one person who loves you with an everlasting, unconditional love in Christ. He is the one who is always faithful to his promises. He is the one who will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the one who delights to spend time with you, who wants to hear from you. This is the God who promises to help you in times of need. Our God is a God of steadfast love, but he is also a God who is just. A God who is just. Verse 24 goes on to say that he practices justice and righteousness in the earth. <clears throat> These two words, justice and righteousness, tell us something about the holiness of God. They tell us that God is perfect, that God is without sin, that he is completely and comprehensively holy. Because of that, why does this encourage us in our relationship with God? Because he's dependable, because he's reliable, because we can always trust that God will never sin against you because he is perfect. God is reliable. But here's the other side of the holiness of God. Because God is just, God will always punish sin. That's where we start to get uncomfortable. We've been good with the last five minutes. Like we're good with the God is love talk. We're good with the God is faithful talk. We're good with the God will never hurt you to talk. But when the sin and judgment stuff comes up, we're like, can we keep going? This is the part I don't like. But here's why this matters. The God of the Bible is a God who is just and a God who will always punish sin. And I remember years and years ago, it was the first time I ever like spoke in front of people in a sermon type thing. Uh, it was at the Peninsula Rescue Mission, which is a mission we support over in Newport News way back in 2000, 
14 or 15. Um, and so I had an opportunity to go and speak. And so first of all, I was super nervous because my first time I'd ever done it. And so naturally I get halfway there and realized I forgot my notes. So I get to go wing it, and I did the best I could, fumbled through it. It was probably terrible. But then uh, after the message, this guy came up to me, and he asked me a really interesting question. I'd mentioned, you know, the story of Adam and Eve and all of that and going through the story of salvation. And he said to me, why couldn't God just forgive them? Why couldn't he just forgive them? Why did we need to go through all of this? Why couldn't God just forgive them? And I don't even remember what I said. I was a 22-year-old kid. I don't remember. And, but the thing is, I've been asked that question many times since then, and I've meditated on it. And I could give you the theology answer, but I'd rather answer by giving you an illustration. Let's say that someone committed a crime against you that was particularly horrible, something that was heinous, something that hurt you to your core, took something valuable to you, hurt someone who is most precious to you in a terrible way, and they were absolutely 100% guilty. Crystal clear they were guilty. Plenty of evidence, plenty of witnesses. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, they are 100% guilty, and they are found guilty in a court of law. And now, for the sake of the illustration, let's say that when it finally comes time for sentencing for this crime, the judge looks at them and says, you know what, I'm a forgiving judge. We're gonna let this one go this time. Just don't do it again with a little wink. And he lets him go. Would you say in that moment, wow, what a nice judge. What a forgiving judge. What a loving judge. Isn't he wonderful? No, you would rightly be protesting in the streets this horrible injustice that had taken place. You'd probably assume that he'd been bribed or bought off and that he was a corrupt and a wicked judge. In church, how much more the God of the universe if he were to sweep our sin under the rug? Those who are made in his image, who were created for the very purpose of bringing him glory, how much more so if our sin went unpunished? This is the God who is 100% love and 100% just. As he says in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. There's that word again. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, don't miss this, who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see the problem here? This is the problem of the Bible. This is the tension of the story of the Bible. How can God be just and love at the same time? Let me put it this way. How can God destroy sin without destroying sinners? This is the problem that the cross was designed to solve because the cross is the place where love and justice meet. It's the place where God's love was fully manifested and God's justice was fully manifested. The cross is the place where God loved his people so much that he would stop at nothing, not even sending his own son to rescue them. But the place where God is so just that sin must be punished and not even his son can be spared. So as Christians, when we look at the cross, there's two things that ought to come to your mind. You ought to think, that's how much God hates sin. And second, that's how much God loves me. It's the place where love and justice meet. So with all of this in mind, if this is the God that we are to know, 
the God who is love and the God who is just. The last question we need to ask is, well, then how? How can we know this God? How can we get to know this God? How can we grow in our relationship with this God? Let me give you three things. First and foundationally, it starts with the gospel. It starts with the gospel. You can't grow in a relationship that does not exist. You have to enter into a relationship with your creator through the gospel. The gospel is what we just talked about, right? It's the good news that God sent his son Jesus into this world to pay for our sins on that cross so that God's justice could be satisfied. The God who loves us so much that he delighted to send his son to save you. And what we celebrated last week, that God raised him from the dead three days later. And now when we turn from our sins and we trust in Christ, we have eternal life. That is the gospel. That is the doorway into a relationship with God. But then the way that we continue in our relationship with God, some of the ways that we grow in our relationship with God, first of all, worship. And by worship, let me be clear, I don't mean music, though that's included. Uh, we often use the word worship and the church is sort of like a, a genre of music. Hey, this is worship music. I'll hear people say, hey, we're going to worship and then we're going to listen to the sermon. And that always makes me, it's one of my little pet peeves, if you will, because everything we do as Christians, when we set our minds and our hearts on God is an act of worship. We're worshiping right now. I am worshiping by declaring the word of God. You are worshiping by listening attentively to the word and by the power of the spirit, it's being applied to your heart and life. Worship is how we grow in our relationship with God. And worship is both private and it is corporate. Let's talk about both of those. Private worship. This is as we day by day live in relationship with God. And every single relationship, this applies to every relationship we're gonna talk about, is really built on two things, time and communication. Every relationship, in order to be healthy, you gotta have time and you gotta have communication. I mean, think about it. Just try not talking to your spouse for a month and see how your marriage does. But we do that with God. But we do that with God. We worship God privately and we have time, quality time with the Lord and communication with God, first of all, through the word, through Bible reading. This is how God speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word. The spirit takes the word and applies it to our hearts and to our lives. And I wanna be very blunt this morning. I intend to be. You will not grow in your relationship with God while this is collecting dust. You just won't. You're not going to grow in your relationship with God without the word. This is how we learn about God so that we can truly know him. And while it is true, you can have a relationship with God like the Pharisees that was just head knowledge. It's possible, very dangerously possible to know all the Bible trivia and yet not know God. But can I suggest to you that it, it, sometimes in our Christian culture, the opposite is also a massive problem where we have a version of Christianity that is all sappy and sentimental and we neglect the mind. We neglect knowing God with our hearts and with our minds. You know, there, when I first decided I wanted to go into ministry and I first started studying theology, I was talking to a professing Christian friend of mine and I said, I'm going to college to study theology. And her response was, that's so boring. <laughs> that's so boring. Like we're talking about God here. We're talking about knowing God. And while we might not be that blunt to come out and say it, listen, how many of us are saying, God, you're so boring? with our lives because we don't give him a second thought because we don't read his word because we don't study to know him to really know him 
We need to know God rightly with our minds in order to rightly love him with our hearts. I mean, think about it. Imagine if I, on my first date with my wife, she starts talking about her past. She starts talking about her hopes and her dreams and her fears and her opinions and her worldview. And I said, hold on, stop right there. That's so boring. That's all just head knowledge. Like, I don't need to know that stuff about you. I just need to love you with my heart. I just need to tell you how pretty you are. Would she feel very honored and loved by that? Of course not. We feel valued and loved when someone really wants to know us. How much more should we focus on knowing God by knowing his word? I gotta move more quickly here because that's only half of the conversation. I talked about communication. The word is how God speaks to us and we speak to God through prayer. That's the other side. That's the other half of the conversation. We've got to be daily, regularly, without ceasing, committed to a lifestyle of prayer where we're talking to God, where we're bringing our requests before the throne of grace, trusting that the Lord hears us, that he wants to talk to us. That's private worship. The word and prayer is the foundation. But there's also corporate worship because we weren't designed just to do this alone, but rather we were designed to come together in the church and to sing together on Sunday mornings, declaring glorious truths about God to God. We sit under the preaching of the word of God. We give faithfully toward the work that the Lord is doing. We gather in small groups during the week to continue to study the word together and encourage one another. This is how we worship God corporately together. And in just a couple of weeks, we're gonna do a sermon on what should our relationships in the church look like. But there's one last point here. We come to know God through delight. Through delight. The last phrase in verse 24 is, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In our relationships in our lives, we grow in them as we learn to delight in what the other person delights in and conversely, hate what they hate and avoid those things. We grow in our relationship with God as we delight in him, as we come to enjoy him, as we come to love what God loves and yes, even hate what God hates. What does that look like practically? First of all, to love what God loves means to study his word and learn what is pleasing to him. Some of you guys have probably read the five love languages book before with your marriage, and that's great, but we need to learn God's love languages, y'all. We need to get into the word. What does God love? What does God delight in? He delights in holiness and righteousness in our lives. He delights in love and service to other people. He delights in us coming to him and spending time with him but what does God hate? I know that's strong language, but you guys realize the Bible does talk about God hating certain things. But first and foremost is sin. God hates sin. And just as offenses between you and another person cause a breach in your relationship, so even though you are forgiven through the gospel, even though you are forgiven, sin in our lives as Christians can still disrupt our enjoyment of our relationship with God. It can put a barrier in our fellowship with God. It brings about his holy displeasure. So one very essential way we grow in our relationship with God is through a regular lifestyle of confession and repentance. And some of us are struggling in our relationship with God because there's a pet sin that you haven't dealt with, that you haven't gotten rid of. And one way that we can grow in our relationship with God is through confession and repentance. And so let me leave you with a few questions this morning. Three questions as takeaways. First question, do you know God? Do you know God? Not just have you heard of him, but do you know him? 
My favorite way to illustrate this, I've used it before, but it's my favorite illustration. I can use it as much as I want. Um, the best Christmas movie, I didn't say my favorite, I said the best Christmas movie, because it's objectively true, is Elf. Uh, and my favorite part of Elf, one of them, is when he starts working in the department store, and they say that Santa's coming the next day. You guys remember what Will Ferrell yells, Santa, I know him. Is he just saying, oh yeah, I've heard about that guy? Of course not. He's saying I was kidnapped when I was a baby and then I was raised by elves in the North Pole and now I'm all kinds of confused. No, he's saying that I have a relationship with him, that I know him. And so let me ask you this morning, if someone mentions Jesus, is it, oh, I've heard about him. Or is it, Jesus, I know him. I have a relationship with him. I love him. He is my savior and my king and my best friend. If that's not you, you're missing out on the best relationship in this world. The one with the king of kings and Lord of lords. And if you wanna talk more about that, I wanna invite our prayer team to come forward now. They'd love to talk with you and pray with you during this last song or after the service about how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Or listen, even if you are a believer, I wanna make sure I'm clear to say this. If you ever come in here with a burden on your heart, with a prayer need, please don't leave unprayed for. These folks love you. We have a faithful prayer team who would love to pray with you and come before the throne of grace with you. Second question is this though, is your relationship with God your highest priority? Is it really number one? We can often give lip service to that, but truly, if someone were to spy on you for a week, would they walk away from this thinking God is their top priority? And listen, this is what Paul said in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, of knowing Christ. Let me ask you, is that your perspective? Have you counted all things as loss compared to knowing Christ? And is there something that you're relying on, something that you're leaning on rather than God that is keeping him from being your top priority? Your own wisdom, your own power, your own abilities and resources? Lay those things aside and put Jesus as number one in your life. Last takeaway, and with this, I'll invite the worship team back. Are you growing? Are you growing in your relationship with God? Are you progressing? If you were to look at your life as a Christian, honestly, a year ago, can you say, I am closer to God today than I was a year ago, six months ago, three months ago, one month ago? Am I growing actively in my faith? If not, what are the steps that you need to take in order to do that? Maybe it's a sin that you need to confess and repent of and move on from. Maybe it's a new spiritual discipline that you've been neglecting that you need to focus on getting in the word and studying it, spending time with the Lord in prayer. Maybe it's more serious and consistent commitment to corporate worship, to being a part of the church. Whatever that step of obedience might be for you, let's take that so that we can grow in our relationship with God, the relationship that is at the foundation of every other relationship in our lives. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful. Lord, we wanna acknowledge right now how unworthy we are to have a relationship with you. Lord, you are so kind to us that you invited us into your family through the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to put you first in every part of our lives and to continually seek to grow to know you more and more. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.